My name is Wim Porstorm. Namaste. I'm very grateful to have been invited by Dr. Sampadananda Mishra, the director of the Sri Aurobindo Foundation for Indian Culture in Pondicherry, to give the following presentation. It's titled A Novel Out of India Migration Theory. Its topic is about how in the ancient past Western countries acquired their Sanskrit-based languages, Indo-European languages, after groups of migrants from Northwest India, the Indus Valley, settled there. But before getting into that, let me first introduce myself. As I said, my name is Wim Bosco and yes, that is Dutch. Although I'm originally from Holland, I now live since 1971 in Canada, in beautiful Victoria on Vancouver Island on Canada's west coast. That's Victoria's Parliament building. Yes, so very Victorian. It's all very British. No doubt you recognize those architectural features as so many Indian buildings were built in that style during those unfortunate British colonial days. Look at the flowers though. They're of course Dutch tulips. And hopefully, in some very limited way, they can make up for the also not so glorious Dutch colonial involvement days in India's past. I am, I should say, a well-traveled independent researcher and Indophile. Indophile? Loving India, how come? Well, there is a connection with the town where I grew up and India. So I come from Delft, yes, the town from where many Dutch East India Company ships sailed to India. To the left, you see the famous painting by Vermeer of Renaissance Delft, with its port from which later, about 100 years later than this painting, ships would sail to India for the spice trade and a thwarted attempt to colonize India, because luckily Bartanda Varma, as you see here on the picture, defeated the Dutch in battle and crushed their Indian expansion. As far as Delft is concerned though, it had a positive side effect, on me at least. On the left you see the Dutch East India Company Heraldic Shield on its VOC Armamentarium, which is a building that stored rifles, cannons, explosive powder, all inside that building. On the right, behind that pillar, you see a building that has Indonesia, India and China connections. The Delft Blue Pillar is of course the China connection, 
and behind this panel is Delft Ethnographic Museum, devoted entirely to Indonesia and India. My dad and I visited it regularly to watch music and dance performances and listen to what I thought were folkloric stories from Indonesia and India. So from when I was very young, I must have been about 11 or 12 years old, I learned to love India and its ancient culture. More on that later, but let's go back now to the topic of this presentation. So back to our novel out of India migration theory. Like I said, I'm a well-traveled researcher, but I did not travel as much as India's ancient migrants did, who traveled as much as this chart illustrates. That is according to my out of India migration hypothesis. Uh, by the way, I'd rather use the word hypothesis because theory, well, even the Aryan invasion theory has really always been an hypothesis, and so is mine. That Aryan invasion theory was only artificially raised to that theory status. In any case, notice those blue, red and yellow lines. I will describe those roots in greater detail later. For now, just note that this chart, what it shows is not the Aryan invasion theory. It's not the theory that states that Aryans from the Eurasian steppe infiltrated India in ancient times, which is of course very much disputed nowadays. Apart from some limited alternative proposals, I believe that I'm probably the only one among Westerners and South Asians to have come up with an extensive, feasible alternative to that Aryan invasion theory. Entirely based on genetic data. Genetic data like mtDNA and yDNA, that is ancient mtDNA and ancient yDNA. I will get into that later. Also, my hypothesis is based on linguistic data, Indo-European languages, how they are connected to Sanskrit. Rather than adding more to the debate that promotes and disputes the Aryan invasion theory, let's just enjoy this cartoon. Notice this man that stands on this high stool. What's he saying there? No AIT. Oh, and look at that man below him. He's walking away with a sign with a yellow cross that says AIT. But on the other stool, there's a new sign just replaced and it says OIT. Out of India theory. On the other side of the picture, 
There's this man pointing up. He's pointing to this man on this high stool who, what's he doing? He's actually erasing some of those red lines. And also, not only is he erasing some of those lines, he's reversing those arrows. You see, those arrows they use go from the top down, down into India and other southern countries in Asia. But that is according to the old AIT, Aryan Invasion Theory. Now, in fact, if you would just turn those arrows that were from the Aryan Invasion Theory, if you just turn them around, they would instantaneously fit, although with lesser importance, into a new OIT, Out of India Theory. As it is, through my research into European and Eastern history and archaeology, I became one of only a few Westerners that are helping to disprove that unfortunately persistent, flawed and unproven Aryan invasion theory. Flawed and unproven? More about that later. Let's focus on the chart to see why this hypothesis is called a novel out of India migration theory. What is so novel about it? Well, let's follow those lines. We shall start at that swastika, you see, that's in India, in the Indus Valley. Although, rather than Indus Valley, it's better identified as the Sapta Sindhava or Seven River Delta of the location of the Harappan or Saraswati civilization culture. Notice the three colored roots, blue, red and yellow. The blue and red pretty well follow coastlines. The yellow line crosses the oceans. They pretty well circle the entire globe. Of course, Vasco di Gama, they completed the circle. So to sum it up for now, in just a few words, we are talking about ancient seafaring and partially land migrations of Sanskrit-speaking people from the Indus Valley throughout the entire world, while they spread their languages worldwide. Seafaring, by sea or by land or both, Sanskrit language, more about that later. Look at that, 5,000 year old Indus Valley seals with, what are they, wind boats. Could they have been used? Could they have been seaworthy vessels? Is it possible that Harappans used them? Now, those seals, they come from the Indus Valley, from the Harappan culture. Now notice that prism-shaped one. When we look at the front, which is the bottom of those three, you see a picture of a ship. It's actually a depiction of a reed boat. You see the oars, 
you see a cabin in the middle. To the right, a grey picture. There's also a seal from the Indus Valley. It has a similar reed boat. Notice that they have these two bows, because that is the way generally these reed boats were constructed. The picture above that, now that is not from the Indus Valley, that is actually from Peru, from Lake Titicaca. How come? Where did those people learn those skills? At the bottom right, you see a picture of Tora Heyerdahl. Above him, you see a picture of the boat, the reed boat, that he was building in Mesopotamia. Remember Tor Heyerdahl, this ocean crossing expeditions? You may remember his Ra expedition with a bundled reed vessel. And then, most important for this hypothesis, his 1977 reed boat Tigris expedition. So, yes, what I propose is that what Tor Heyerdahl attempted to prove and was successful at, that indeed ancient seafaring migrants have done the same. Of course, millennia before Tor Heyerdahl did. On the left side you see a picture of Lothal, which is the city right on that map that is circled, Lothal, and it was a seaport. Below that you see a picture done by Dr. Kennerier, a depiction that he made of Lothal. The pink area is the Sarasvati Delta or the Indus Valley Delta. So during the Holocene era, which began at the end of the last ice age, which was about 11,650 years before present, over a period between 8,000 and 3,000 years ago, spreading out from the Indus Valley, during the Harappan or Sarasvati culture, in what is now India and Pakistan, multiple parallel and sequential overland and by sea migrations took place, including reed boat faring and later plank boat sailing migrants. So wave-like, coast hugging, island hopping, land and ocean crossing migrations went more so by sea than overland. While those migrants and their offspring ceded their Sanskrit language across much of the entire globe. Sanskrit language. Of course, I have to prove that. Now, how did I come to this idea? Now, 
notice on that picture you see this little boy and with those short pants and actually when I was young when I was about 13 years old we were wearing short pants still so I think I pretty much look like this little guy so how in the ancient past Western countries acquired their Sanskrit-based languages. Well, that began as a germ of an idea when I was 13 years old, an inquisitive young lad. You see, I had begun to wonder why Dutch, my native language, was considered to be an Indo-German language why Indo-German? Should it not be Indo-European? Well, in those days, in 1957, the term Indo-European was only used in Britain, where Thomas Young, who is said to have been the last human who knew everything, a polymath, had came up with the term Indo-European, which is now in general use. But again, why did I wonder about Indo-German? Why Indo and why German? Well, as a kid even, I used to joke that German was actually a Dutch dialect. I joked about it because I knew that nobody would take me seriously. Although, I had already figured out that I was right. I was a precocious kid, I'm sure. How I found out I was right though, I described that in my paper, which is the basis of this talk, so I won't get into that now. Well, uh, maybe I should. First we have to address pronunciation, articulation, and then I will address the idea of etymology. So let's first figure out the idea of articulation, because that was one of the major ideas that gave me an aha moment. When I was 13, I noticed that a visiting German family, they came from deep inland rural Germany, that they did not speak my school German, what we learned at school, or they did not speak the big city or movie German. They in fact almost mumbled the language. They were swallowing their consonants. Of course, when we told them that they couldn't understand them, they started speaking city German. Anyway, that not clear language that made me think. You see, I figured it's all about consonants, sharp pronunciation, articulation. Like Scottish, Dutch, Italian, many European coastal area dialects and languages, they are very sharp in their pronunciations. But in the country, more inland, in general, as distinct from the cities, people's pronunciation is overall less articulated. Where, as I said, in general, coastal languages are more articulated. I'm obviously generalizing, but remember I was still a kid when I made this up. Of course I had to prove that. Now, Hindi, of course, has also strong consonants, 
strong articulation. So does Sanskrit. Almost an aha, because when I was 13 I didn't know about that. The real aha for me came many years later, when I was 30 years old instead of 13, after I learned Sanskrit. Well, at least I'd learned it well enough to read it. So it was then that I saw the first connection between Hindi, well, Sanskrit actually, and Europe's coastal languages, those Indo-European languages. What I thought, well, what if Indo-European meant from India to Europe in the ancient past, along the coast, by boat, not so much over land, but by sea? You see, if it were over land, let's say from India to Europe, if it were over land, then it would go from articulate India through consonant-swallowing, mumbling Central Europe, again I'm generalizing, and then go to the coastal countries where the languages became articulated again, going from good articulation to less strong articulation to strong articulation, even though there were la different languages. That did not make sense at all to me. I'll now address etymology. Etymology is kind of a language science to find out the origin of words, like when I say the word book or Bible, where did it come from originally? What was it based on? Which language was the root for those words? Anyway, uh, did you know that 80% or even more of all Western languages words have Sanskrit roots? As example, and I only give one example really, mother, father in English, mutter, vater in German, Mère, père in French, mater, pater, Latin, and then of course mater and pita were the root words that eventually turned into master, pater, mère, père, mutter, vater, mother, father, mother, father in my Dutch language. Many years later, after I'd learned Sanskrit, and became quite interested in the Arabian civilization, I had gathered enough information to put together a feasible hypothesis, which I at first published in 2013 on academia.edu. After a number of iterations and peer reviews by various publications, my paper, which really is in broad brushstrokes, my paper nevertheless was well received and most recently, last February, I was invited to present it in New Delhi at IHAR's Indic Chronology Conference at the Indira Gandhi National Center for the Arts. By the way, IHAR stands for Indian History Awareness and Research. That's a think tank based in Houston, Texas, 
of course, in the United States. A group of Indian uh, people who really want to start researching and bring into current awareness the history of India the way it is supposed to be. We are going to talk about genetics and language. Let's first talk about DNA. It says at the circle ancient haplogroup I mtDNA. You see the circle and within that circle there is a light purple and the further away you go from that circle you see that overall the color gets darker and darker. Iceland and Scotland are the darkest. First we will focus on this chart haplogroup I mtDNA and Sanskrit in Northwest India. Let me explain the chart. Haplogroup I mtDNA. Why is it so light in India and so dark in the other areas? Well, it is because this is ancient DNA and in the Indus Valley they only were able to find a few ancient skeletons from thousands of years old and they found haplogroup mtDNA. I'll explain that later. And they found in other parts of Europe, as indicated by the chart, many more ancient skeletons, because after all the scientists and the archaeologists and the historians lived there, and they also found out their DNA, also haplogroup I mtDNA. The basis for the Aryan invasion theory, because those people who lived in Europe, they thought, well, look at that, there is so much in Europe, uh, it must have come from Europe to India, because after all, how can it go from, well, let's think about that. What if nowadays we find more skeletons in India, more ancient skeletons, and what if we find out that those skeletons happen to actually have more DNA data, just because we got more samples? Then of course that changes the picture. Could that not mean that maybe in the past those Harappan people that they moved to those other areas in Europe where they well brought forth a lot of Europeans. Let's talk about mtDNA. So mt stands for mitochondrial haplogroup. There are many haplogroups. It's kind of an alphabet soup of haplogroups from A to Z. That haplogroup IMTDNA is carried on from mother to daughter and son. Indistinct from Y-DNA, which is carried on from father to son. So this chart that we have here shows how over time Obviously, when the women traveled with their husbands, let's say it that way, they actually moved to those countries and all the ancient people there in Europe, of course, inherited that mtDNA. So ancient mtDNA, ancient skeletons, 
depending on how many were sampled. Light purple, because there were not so many ancient data. Dark purple, because there were many more. And my contention is that indeed it went out of India elsewhere. So again about that DNA. When we are going by genetic evidence, you find specific sets, haplogroups of mtDNA and yDNA data in samples taken from ancient skeletal remains that show up in Europe, North Africa, Eurasia, the Arabian Peninsula and India, but all that combined. I'm focusing again on the circle in India about Sanskrit. When we are going by linguistic evidence, we find that according to up to two and a half thousand years worth of etymological research, from maybe even earlier, but definitely from Panini on, to Pindar, to Thomas Brown, to recent findings, we're pretty good at it nowadays, all Western languages, that mean, means the whole region in purple, and more, as we'll see later, use 80% of their words that have Sanskrit roots. On this chart, note the two circles. The, the left one is the same as the previous one, and the right one is different. So the left one is haplogroup I mtDNA, and the right one is haplogroup W mtDNA. So both from female mtDNA brought down to their daughters and sons as they spread all over this particular area. It's an interesting thing. You can see on the right hand side the darker spots are different. So one area is the BMAC area, the Bactrian Margiana complex region. Then the other one in the middle is the Yabla culture. And the darker one to the left of it is the Andronovo culture more or less Central Europe. Aryan invasion people with a different theory. It was from those darker areas that it went into India. Of course, I have to now convince you that that was not so. This is a chart with more recent haplogroup I DNA of people that are currently living in Europe, not ancient DNA. A lot of that is present in Scandinavia, Finland, Lithuania, Denmark, Frisia, Scotland, the British Islands, Britannia, Basque country, northern Spain, southern France, Italy, Macedonia. That's where those areas where people nowadays have the same haplogroup I DNA and interestingly enough their language is also much more stronger Indo-European than other parts of the world. So we saw the top two charts before. The bottom left is a good picture of that 
entire area in invasion theory. They didn't concern themselves only with invasion into India, that invasion also went into Europe. Remember that we talked about changing those arrows? Well, if you change many of those arrows that point down into India and into Turkey, Anatolia, and into that part northern part above India, if you just turn them around and leave some of the other arrows alone, then what you get is exactly the out of India hypothesis, as it shows on that cartoon on the right hand side. I think what I'm trying to picture here is now getting pretty clear. Keeping all the previous things we talked about in mind, let's now address river, lake and sea navigation with reed vessels by the Harappans. Yes, Harappans, by the way, is the official archaeologist name for the inhabitants of the Indus Valley because Harappa was the first village that was discovered to have these ancient ruins and these Indus Valley seals. Now, interesting, this picture on the left-hand side, that is indeed a seal that looks like an Indus Valley seal, but it's not found in the Indus Valley. It was found on Falaika Island in the Persian Gulf. To the right of that you see a reed boat, a reconstruction that they made. Uh, by the way, currently in southern part of Mesopotamia, they're still actually using reed boats. They also live on reed islands, floating islands, very interesting. By the way, that part of Mesopotamia is where Thor Heyerdahl went to to build his Tigris expedition ship. He had those people in southern part of Iraq help him. And with that boat, he planned to go to the Arabian Peninsula. He actually wanted to go through the Red Sea. That was the plan. But something went differently. So the boat was done. They sailed successfully down the Persian Gulf. But as soon as they came to the mouth of the Persian Gulf, they wanted to turn left. But the wind was wrong. They couldn't. And well, they had no choice. He thought, well, let's go. So instead of going left, the boat went right. Where do you think it ended up? It ended up in the Indus Valley. They got out of their boat and they went onto the land and he was surprised, the various villages that he visited, that they had these pyramid-like buildings called ziggurats. He knew those ziggurats very well from, of course, the land of Mesopotamia. He started to develop an idea. He thought, he was the first one ever to think that, he thought, what if Mesopotamia and India had something going on between themselves. When I read it in his book and studied all these trips, I thought, what if it was going from 
the Indus Valley to the Persian Gulf. Well, we can see proof of that because notice that particular seal that you see from Valaika Island, that is a reed boat. They found more seals around the Persian Gulf, which also had text on it, and the text when you study the form of it and the idea where it was found, the people that researched it said they must have come from or made by people that came from the Indus Valley. That's why I started thinking it must have gone that way. Anyway, Tor Heyerdahl had seen this thing. Uh, luckily, the seasonal winds changed and they went back. Eventually he was able to go south of the Arabian Peninsula and he wanted to go into the Red Sea, but that was in those days of the Suez Canal crisis and he couldn't go through. There were lots of sunken ships that prevented him and it was quite a, a world catastrophe really for all the trade. And in protest he burnt his ship. But let's now get back to the story. So we can tell from this seal and other Harappan style seals with Indus Valley script found there that the Harappans lived and traded with the inhabitants who lived around the Persian Gulf and up the rivers of Mesopotamia. Now I haven't gotten into explaining yet why people would migrate. Why do people do that? Of course, we are focusing here on ancient migrations from northwest India, from the Indus Valley. It's not uncommon for people to be driven by a natural inclination to look for other shores, but especially, especially so when they are forced to look for greener pastures because of a number of large natural catastrophes. One being climate change, not like now, but one due to the end of the Younger Dryas glacial period. While those migrants settled in those newly found locations and mixed with local populations, they introduced their culture and skills, but also their Sanskrit language. Now, why Sanskrit? How do we know if those people, those Harappans, if they spoke Sanskrit? That's something that is really not being agreed upon nowadays among academic people. So I will have to go into that. Let's check those seals. There is something interesting. Notice every one of them has, it's a tiger. Every one of them has a tree. Every one of them has a little guy sitting in the tree. The bottom one is slightly different. It has another seed. We'll talk about that other seed a little later. So let me explain the story. Now, I should again tell you something about myself. So when I was 12 years old, remember 
uh, I went to that ethnographic museum where they were telling those folkloric stories. In fact, on TV we had a program where somebody from Indonesia told stories from Indonesia. Now, in those days, Indonesia was still very Hindi. It was not as Islamic. So the stories that were told there by the parents to their kids were based on Indian lore. Now, I remember one of those stories on TV. It was about a story about a little kid, Kanta was his name, and the story was about him being chased by a tiger, and he ended up in a tree, and while he was in the tree, he, well, he was hunted by the tiger, right? And while he was up in the tree, uh, all kinds of things were going on. Uh, the story then went a little different, but later on, many, many, many years later, when I started studying these seals, when I saw those, these that you are looking at right now, I thought, I've seen that before. I remember that from that story from when I was 13 years old. What if I started, of course, to now read the Mahabharata even more? Some of the other uh, ancient books from India. And I found there is one particular tale, and many people know that in India, they tell that to their kids uh, around the festivities of Mahashivaratri, right? And that story is about a hunter, a tree, a tiger, and Shiva. Well, the Dutch story that I told you about didn't talk about Shiva, but here the story does. Now, that is a story of Lord Shiva and the hunter Lubdaka from the Shiva Purana and Shanti Parva. So what happened? That story talks about there was this Lubdaka. He was chased by the tiger. Uh, luckily, well, Lubdaka was actually hunting for deer. Lubdaka ended up in the tree, luckily, and was safe. But it was late at night, it started getting darker and darker, and he became cold and he started shivering. The nights in India are cold, in northern India. So he started picking at those leaves. It was a bilva tree, so bal leaves. And as he picked them, they dropped on the floor. He was there overnight, and in the morning when the sun came up, he looked down. Oh, lucky, no tiger, no tiger. So he climbed down. And he saw a big rock, and he saw the leaves that he had been dropping. Then suddenly he heard a loud growl behind him. He turned around, and all of a sudden, rather than the tiger, he saw Shiva. And Shiva said to him, Look, Daka, look what you've done. You throw all those leaves, my favorite Bilva leaves, so nicely around my favorite stone at Lincoln. My, you are a very special boy. You know, I will give you liberation. Moksha. At that point, Lubdaka became very happy. Of course, he had seen the light, he had seen Shiva. Now, that is the story the way it was written about, and first orally, and later transferred to other people then written about, and now well known in India. So when I saw that these seals 
had a story that appeared in Sanskrit. I started thinking, what if they actually spoke Sanskrit? Yeah, what is this other story? Notice the bottom seal. There you see one guy with his arms stretched out and two other men with two trees uprooted. Uh, this man in the middle is pushing apart or... Well, that's also a story that is well known in India. It's about Nalakuvara and Manikriva who were turned into, well, they were actually cursed by the sage Narada for their wantonness. They were, well, they have done some things that Narada thought they shouldn't have done. And they were cursed and turned into trees. They stayed like trees for a long time. Anyway, there is a story, one of the stories about uh, little Krishna, who was naughty as well. He tried to escape from his mom, and one way or another, he had some rope, and by accident he pulled those two trees over, and when the trees were pulled over, they got uprooted, and lo and behold, who came out of it? Those two guys. So, another story actually tells it differently, but you could say that, in a way, Krishna undid the curse that was put on them by Narada. Isn't that something? There is a seal in the Indus Valley, one of those Harappan seals that tells a story that is well known in Sanskrit. You know, of course I had an aha experience. So, that the language they spoke, that it was indeed Sanskrit, it is based on my discovery, as I detailed in my book Skanda, an ancient god rediscovered, of which you can find a preview on academia.edu, and which is also extensively documented on a Facebook page with 15,000 followers that I run, and it's called Indus Valley Culture. So if you're interested to get more data on this, you're welcome. So, based on my discovery that dozens of narrative cartoon-like depictions engraved on many more dozens Harappan seals featured story themes that appear in the earliest Sanskrit literature. The Mahabharata, the Ramayana, a number of Puranas, and so on. And, now this may surprise you, there is actually a decipherment. It's not accepted, of course, it doesn't go that way, academia doesn't do that so well, but uh, with a team of people, and one particular lady, Sue Sullivan, myself and the team, we interpreted those seals based on the decipherment that Mrs. Sue Sullivan, after decades of long effort by her. So with the team, about seven people, we collaborated on that. And we, with confidence, we have now been bringing it out to the world. And uh, for the last five years, I've been traveling throughout India. Uh, one time, about three months, uh, a 20-venue tour throughout India, where 
I was invited to actually introduce these ideas. I should say none of it has been, no, how should I say? It has been ignored or not acknowledged. It doesn't matter to me because it's very difficult to actually get academia get into that. And I can understand that. Uh, there's probably nobody with that kind of academic background who wants to acknowledge something that was discovered by somebody not from their trade, uh, not their discipline. And if they would actually acknowledge it, they might be ridiculed. And so we thought as a group to bring this out into the world in a different manner. And this video is actually part of that. So altogether then, that there is DNA evidence showing that the Arabian genome spread from the Edis Valley to at least Europe, in whatever way, and that at least the European lands migrated into by early Arabians and their later progeny, that they spoke Indo-European, and that the Indo part of those languages is surely etymologically rooted in the Sanskrit language, and that the narrative cartoon-like seals from the Sapta Sindhava Valley, from where the migrants originated, could be deciphered, translated. Uh, by the way, her book is available. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and it has thousands of seals. It, it's really a fantastic work. It, it's magistral. Anyway, they were found in the ancient Indian literature. So that brings me to the conclusion that the Arapan culture, those migrants, that they spoke Sanskrit. While those Harappan civilization migrants and their children traveled to farther shores and landed and settled in various places throughout, over time their Sanskrit tongue and the local tongues spoken by the various indigenous people who inhabited those European islands and coastal areas that intermixed. They started forming various dialects, and those dialects eventually, and over time, developed into that very large variety of classic and current Indo-European languages. In addition, the seafaring and island hopping migrants, and I'll show more about that later, also left their Sanskrit remnants of their language on the ocean's archipelagos, which influenced the Malayo-Polynesian languages in the Pacific Ocean. There is actually a study detailing it, titled East Indian Influence on the Polynesian Culture, by my good friend, she was part of our team, or still is, Ushi Ringleip, with a paper that also can be found on academia.edu. So let's now go into the roots. So there you see in the center of this chart, the legend at the top it says root 1, blue, root 2, red, root 3, yellow. Now that we are provided with these interesting ancient DNA data and the Sanskrit evidence, 
we can now focus our attention on the voyages that were taken. As shown earlier on, I've indicated three main routes, three distinct directions, which time-wise occurred in wave-like fashion, both sequentially and in parallel manner. So at the same time, people were going east and west. I'm sure you were surprised when you heard that they pretty well circled the entire globe. Well, now it should not be a surprise anymore. These ventures began quite early on, spanning the millennia between around 8,000 and 3,300 years ago. Uh, by the way, that is when the Harappan civilization ended, for whatever reason, which we won't go into now. Initially, it were adventurers and greener pastures seeking inhabitants from the Seven Rivers Delta, whose ventures many initially just had been normal natural human exploits. But as I said before, they were together with trade, as you could tell from those seals found in Mesopotamia and from around the Persian Gulf, they were also driven by natural calamities such as droughts, flooding, tsunamis, earthquakes, famine, disease in the Indus Valley, all to do with drought, flooding, and lots of death, etc. We need to keep in mind, by the way, this is important, that those river valley inhabitants were already river and lake navigation savvy. We sometimes forget that. They were regular fisher people. There were lakes, there were rivers. There were land people. There were farmers, herders, agriculturalists. They were skilled with crafts, copper, melting, foundries, gold, jewelry making, pottery, all that. They were skilled in all metal crafts. There's one thing which is interesting. So it is those people that migrated who did not migrate from the Indus Valley. Now, what I've been able to find out, and I'm writing a paper on that, is that, let's say the elite, it's not a proper word, but let's just say the elite, the ruling class, the learned people with their scribes, the ones that actually created those seals, I have great reasons to believe that during those many thousand years, they over time moved upwards into the lower hills, the foothills of the Himalayas, where they actually founded the Vedic religion in the Vedic era. There's a lot more to write about it. It's an interesting viewpoint and it explains a lot of other things which I won't get into now. Okay, back to the story then. Let's trace those Indian migrant voyages. Route one. So going westwards. So let's just pretend we are those Arabians. So we are taking our reed vessels and we go sailing, shore hugging, 
and we safely follow the coastlines. It's safe. We stay close to the coast, safe. Luckily, we have the wind with us and the prevailing winds, and we are going westwards along the coast. First south of what is now Balochistan, then along the coast of Iran, and we go towards Iraq through the Gulf of Arabia to Mesopotamia. Then we reverse course. We've been up there long enough and we go down. By the way, not all of us went down. Some of us actually stayed around there in the Mesopotamian area. Remember? They did some trade and so on. We proceeded down, rounding the coast southwest of the Arabian Peninsula, and then we sail through the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. Of course, we didn't know about the Mediterranean Sea. We were just following the coast. Anyway, we came to the well, I was going to say, we came to the end of the Mediterranean Sea, because nowadays we know there is a problem there. You cannot just sail through. Anyway, nobody could stop us. Well, what happened though? By the way, before we get into that, there is a solution. Let's not forget that those people who preferred journeying overland, who stayed in Mesopotamia, who did not mind being challenged by treacherous mountain passes, the Khyber Pass for example, and mounted ranges such as the Caucasus, large groups ended up east and north of the Caspian Sea. Settled there, and their offspring going further into the Russian steppe. Other groups after having gone up the rivers of Mesopotamia and crossing the Caucasus, arrived at the shores of the Black Sea, settled there, and their offspring again going further into Central Europe. Other groups again, and their offspring, and by the way, they were agriculturalists, they inherited the agricultural skills from people 12,000 years ago, from Baluchistan, where now Mirkar is. They knew uh, agricultural skills and they actually planted that in Anatolia, in Turkey. Of course, people nowadays think that that was invented in Turkey, in Anatolia, but you know, my contention is that it actually came from India. So they ended up in Anatolia, in Turkey. So now remember, after we went further and further up the Red Sea, we ran into, well, we should have run into, but we didn't, we easily ended up in the Mediterranean Sea. If you wonder how that was possible, the area where the, what we now call, Suez Canal Zone is situated, it was at times quite navigable. In fact, you may not know that. It was always navigable. Not so easily, but here's a picture of the Suez area. Here's Port Said. That's the Suez Canal area. 
here's the Red Sea. And you notice all that is waterways. Now, not that it could easily be navigated in normal times because there were the tides, they went in different directions, so it was pretty difficult. But there's another thing that happens. You see, on the right side, now this is very interesting. This is a chart that covers a time span from 140,000 years ago to current. Notice on the uh, right side, you see 140 at the bottom line on the axis uh, to the left it goes towards zero, which is now. Then on the y-axis, you see sea levels and from, let's say, 150 meters lower to where it says zero, which is current times. As you see on the right side, that must have been one of the major glacial periods. Then it warmed, then it went up and down and up and down and down and down and down. Then somewhere around 20,000 years ago, so more to the left, you see there's this dip and that is a part of that was the younger Dryas glacial period. After that period, a warming cycles started happening again. And as it was warming, the snow from the mountains started, of course, melting. And as that was melting, you see how the sea level was rising and rising and rising. And where it is now, it is, of course, sea level. An interesting thing, though, you see that arrow? You see that arrow inside that box? Well, that box is actually an enlargement from that point zero. Now you see that uh, the arrow points at a little gray line. And that gray line, the beginning of that gray line, is at about 8,000 years ago and goes to around 3,000 years ago. And when you find out the data, there's many more charts available on this nowadays. At that point, the sea levels were 6 to 10 meters higher. So that, of course, allowed easy sailing to the Mediterranean lands. Let's follow them further. So remember now we passed the Suez Channel and we can turn left and right. And some of us turned left and they went the way from to Egypt. And luckily there was enough reed there to rebuild or to build more reed boats. Some other of our groups went to the right and of course they came in the Levant and there was no reed and the boats had of course deteriorated. I mean they can only do and stay well so long so then we had to invent plank board, stitched plank board ships. In fact remnants of these ships have been found in Mesopotamia and other areas deep underwater. So the scale was already known, but when we, how happens that we invented those ships. So beyond Egypt, so reed wasn't available, but as we were told, we invented stitched plank vessels, which incidentally kept those typical shapes. Remember those double proud, double bowed shapes that are still retained in 
gondolas in Venice and those Viking ships. So those ships, just tradition, you know how tradition goes. India, little tradition. I mean, nowadays people in India currently live the way they were 8,000 years ago. Why shouldn't gondolas and Viking ships still have a tradition that's based on something that was age old? Maybe I'm just hypothesizing, but it's interesting. So from Egypt, by the way, in those lands, all the countries that I'm going to talk about, they all had ancient DNA. Remember that ancient haplogroup I DNA? That's in all those countries. So we went to the Levant, the Turkish coast, Greece, Macedonia, Croatia, Italy, southern France, southern Spain, all that with our skills, possibly even more, more advanced as we went on. We introduced fishing if it wasn't done, we introduced farming if it wasn't done, husbandry, agriculture, craft, pottery, etc. And of course, our Sanskrit language. So we subsequently passed through the Strait of Gibraltar, rounding Portugal and Spain, settling in Basque country, Bretagne in France. We went to the North Sea's coastal lands like Frisia, then Scotland, Ireland, Britain, and from there to Denmark. Then to the Scandinavian lands, to the Baltic Sea's coastal regions. And the last place was Lithuania. And lo and behold, Lithuania has more Sanskrit-based words than anywhere in the world. So all those areas I've mentioned, uh, they still have that DNA from their Indian ancestors. And there are now specific languages such as French, Italian, Greek, German, Dutch, etc. They gradually developed from the Sanskrit mother tongue, though some mixed with existing indigenous tongues, and they turned into those newer languages. By the way, we should really realize that the places where those migrants landed, they were not as populated as we tend to think. So uh, for their tongues, the Sanskrit tongue, not to have changed or altered that much by, let's say, languages like Gothic, that is understandable. Let's go to the second route, the red line. Again, we start from that swastika. And you see the line goes a little bit south along the coast of India, and it circles around the bottom of India. In fact, overlands. Many of the uh, people also went to the Ganga area and the southern part of the foothills of the Himalayas. So they went within India, north, south, east, central, 
and southern India regions and from eastern India some of those groups and northern India, Kolkata and of course from the south too, they also started traveling more and more. And that's still in the older times and of course that was still done in the more current times. So shore-hugging overseas migration also took place around India's mainland coast and throughout India's land. Of course, in more recent historical classical eras, especially under Ashoka, between, let's say, two, three hundred years BC, migrations were also taking place. And furthermore, under subsequent, more recent leaders, they were Indian people are still migrating to the rest of the world. What happened with those people in the archipelagos along the coast also of China? Again, those red lines follow that coast. You also see that the red line, when you go through Indonesia, ends up in Australia. There is just a recent study, published probably about a year ago, uh, where they found that Australia has Indian DNA, the yellow route. Or further east over sea, the Pacific Ocean's coastal lines are archipelagos and the Americas. If we come to the end of our talk, it's good to thank everybody. So let me again thank Dr. Sampadananda Mishra of the Sri Aurobindo Foundation of Indian Culture for sponsoring this talk, but also the various colleges, universities, museums, publishers and organizations in Bhopal, Nagpur, Varadasi, Kolkata, Pune, Bangalore, Chennai, New Delhi and Houston, Texas. I've all been there. I've met so many people there, so many friends, as well as many very dear friends in, who I very know very personally, in New Delhi, in Kolkata, but there is one very special friend in Avon, in Connecticut. She actually, about 20 years ago, got me to go into India and get further into my interest that had to do with Hinduism, Buddhism, Bhagavad Gita, uh, all that knowledge about that's so wonderful about India and where I actually myself found my roots. Especially I found my roots in a wonderful place, you all know that, in more or less the center of India where I really felt very much uh, at home, Kajaraho. I felt also very much at home in Varanasi. It was as though when I was in Varanasi, I felt even I was walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. You know, the experience of a Western person, when they feel that their DNA, I mean, all the cells in their body, in my body especially, all your cells in your body have that memory deeply, deeply from away, from a long time ago. And then through meditation and study and interest 
and love, when you become aware of it, then you automatically feel drawn to your country of ancestry. You come into India, I land in Mumbai, and you smell that warm air. And although it might not be all that clean, but I start weeping. I'm home, I'm home. I come into Kajarao, and it's although I feel I find my ancestors there. I see those wonderful buildings. India, such an amazing country. Of course, I thank my wife, Amy, who so well supported me with this project. Well, I was so often abroad and also, if not abroad, hooked up to my computer and smartphone. Well, thank you all. Daddy Avat.